across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pints! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon, and after a very long time, this is Flavour coming to you live from the Cambridge 105 Radio Studios in Guida Street. I'm Matt Bentman, and I am sitting here worrying that I'll have forgotten how to use the mixing desk, so if there's any inadvertent silences, my apologies. But... Also back in the studio are Alan Alder and Sue Bailey. Uh, yeah, and it's so nice to be back here. Yeah. Uh, today we have Gail from the Pear and Olive and their new menus. We'll hear from a new homeware stall on Cambridge Market. And we'll also be celebrating apples with Laura Donoghue. We've plenty of news, including from Elle Events, and there will, of course, be our job section too. First, though, it's half term. And how do you amuse your children with something that interests you too? Museums are an obvious answer, though you do have to make the right choice. Andrew Webb has been to one which features some food ideas, and they're a bit unusual, to say the least. How does Weetabix spread with fish paste sound? Or poached egg on shredded wheat? Well, you may be surprised to learn that many products have changed their serving suggestion or market position since their invention. Pay a visit to the excellent Museum of Brands in London's Notting Hill and you'll see a carton of Weetabix from the 1930s advising you to serve said biscuits with milk, jam or cheese. The idea of putting a slice of cheese on a Weetabix and having it as a snack or for supper may seem crazy nowadays, but back then, products like this, and there were a number of them, were intended almost as long-life bread replacements. I actually tried this serving suggestion out and while not totally unpleasant, it wasn't particularly tasty. But cheese wasn't the only topping. There's an advert from the 1920s that suggests spreading with jam, marmalade, fish or meat paste, or even sardines. Try that with the kids at breakfast. Another product that's changed over the years is Lucasade. If you're a child of the 60s or 70s, you knew you were really poorly when Mum got the Lucasade in. Invented in 1927 by Geordie chemist William Owing and originally called Glucosade, it was originally designed to aid recovery of people with colds and illnesses. In 1929, it dropped the G, becoming Leucosade, and was even dispensed in hospitals to the sick. Then, in 1983, everything changed, and the iconic cellophane yellow wrapper was ditched and the drink repositioned as a sports drink rather than an illness recovery drink. AIDS recovery became replaces lost energy. This move was spearheaded by one of the greatest adverts of all time. It featured Olympic decathlon gold medalist Daley Thompson training to the heavy riffs of Iron Maiden's Phantom of the Opera and then refreshing himself with Lucasade. What's more, the voiceover at the end is none other than legendary sports commentator Des Lynham. You can't get more sport than that. This move remains perhaps the greatest brand repositioning ever, creating a whole new market section that later gave rise to Red Bull, Powerade and NRG which a friend of mine once pronounced Nerg. Kedgeri is another product that's totally changed. The roots of Kedgeri lie in the Indian dish of kichari, which is made with rice and lentils, flavoured and coloured with turmeric, 
and mostly eaten for breakfast. In 1845, Eliza Acton, who never actually went to India, published a recipe that not only featured cayenne instead of turmeric, but also had eggs cracked into it. And it is she who is responsible for the inclusion of haddock, a fish not exactly plentiful in the Bay of Bengal. David Burton, author of The Raj at Table, explains that smoked Scottish haddock was becoming more available nationally at this time, and so we were subsequently added to the dish here. Mrs Beaton only ever used mustard as her heat-giving condiment, which is odd given that curry powder appears elsewhere in her eponymous tome. Over the years, all sorts of things have been added, from peas to hard-boiled eggs to mango chutney. So it's an Indian dish that's now made with totally different British ingredients that was once eaten for breakfast, but now is more likely to be eaten for supper. Clear? Good. Though a few decades older than Weetabix, shredded wheat was also intended as a bread substitute, and it too was promoted with a variety of toppings and serving suggestions. Adverts from the 1900s encouraged housewives to split them and toast them under a grill before topping with fruit, or even a poached egg. Again, in the name of research, I actually tried this combination for a recent Radio 4 documentary, and I can tell you that it's not particularly nice, and far too dry. This, it goes with anything for a dried biscuity cereal product, sounds bonkers these days, right? Well, the latest Rivita ad is exactly that. Yoghurt was once the foodstuff of traditional Greek farmers and those with an intimate love of dairy animals. It was only ever eaten in this country by health-conscious hippies in the 1960s. You'll find no trace of it in the likes of Mrs Beaton or right up to Dorothy Hartley in the 1950s. Historically, a soured milk product in Britain was called a wig or a whey wig, sometimes flavoured with herbs such as mint or sage, and even then normally consumed as a drink. But even this use had pretty much died out by the end of the 19th century. Then, in 1963, ski yoghurt was launched, which saw masses of fruit and sugar added to natural yoghurt and single-handedly create a whole supermarket sector overnight. Of course, now that sugar's in the spotlight, we are, in some cases at least, returning to natural or Greek-style yoghurts once more. Georgian physician and health farm entrepreneur William Oliver extolled the virtues of drinking Bath's waters. He also invented the Bath bun, made with a sweetish dough and often containing caraway seeds. His patients, however, enjoyed his buns rather too much, so he invented the Bath Oliver, made from flour, milk, butter, malt and hops. It was a light, easy-to-digest biscuit and helped some of his more portly patients slim down. They were, in their way, the original Rivita. They're still available, although now more likely to be topped with a big slab of cheese. Huntley and Palmer's, biscuiteers to the rich and famous, even do a chocolate-coated one, which they describe as the ultimate biscuit indulgence, which is probably not what Dr Oliver had in mind. Another product of empire, tonic water, was a way to make quinine a touch more palatable. From the 17th century until the 1940s, quinine was the only anti-malarial medicine available, and British staff stationed in tropical regions where malaria was rife began mixing the bitter bark extract with soda water. These original medicinal tonics contain large amounts of quinine, some 500 to 1,000 milligrams, whereas the quinine in your average G&T today is about 80 milligrams. They're there to give the unique bitter flavour, so what started off as a medicine soon became a mixer. An equivalent today would be for Cavornia cough syrups to bring out a cocktail. So where does all this leave us? Well, products are constantly evolving, and what seems clear-cut right now might not be so in the future. Today's products, like ice cream, are always sweet, but there are those tinkering at the edges with more savoury flavours, like parmesan, which is great slightly melted with ham and melon on a hot day. Or even chilli, that goes great with tiger prawns. And just a few years ago, salted caramel would have sounded ridiculous, and now it's hard to find unsalted caramel. 
So what products do you think will change their serving suggestions in the years to come? And tell us more. In the meantime, I'm off for a bath olive and a glass of Lucasade. Hmm. Well, we hope you enjoy them, Andrew. That was Andrew Webb at the Museum of Brands in Notting Hill. It's open from 10 till 6 Monday to Saturday and from 11 till 5 on Sundays. Sounds like an interesting place for you, Sue, as a food historian. Have you been there? Well, I have indeed, and it's absolutely fascinating. Brilliant place. Highly recommended. All right, must go. Uh, on to our first news break now. And here's a way you can remember Stella Pereira, who so sadly died earlier in the year. Per Pan Tree, the charity which Stella and her husband Carlos set up to support children in Africa, is having a fundraising sale of hand-carved pieces created by Carlos from oak tabletops donated by Alex Signorelli of Signorelli's in Burley Street. The sale will start at 12 noon and finish at 5.30 on the 7th of November and it will be held at Mercato by Signorelli on the ground floor of the Grafton Centre. And Stella once said that every child deserves a slice of cake. So in memory of that, there will be cakes on sale too, donated by Bridges, Gourmandise, La Latina Busturante, Norfolk Street Bakery, Baking Gin and the White Cottage Bakery. The Wine Rooms in Hills Road is running a very special event with a five-course tasting menu paired with Chateau de Beaucastel wines owned by the Perrin family and the evening will be hosted by Andrew Bailey of Famille Perrin. The dishes include poached cod, girol risotto with shaved trussel, braised venison and the wine pairing with this is the 2009 Chateau Neuf du Pape which sells at around £120 a bottle. Tom cheese, goat's curd and pistachio cheesecake complete the menu. It's on the 3rd of November at 6.30 for 7 and the cost is £100 a head. A very special occasion. You can book via the Wine Rooms website, go to the events section. The Senate Bistro in St Mary's Passage has a Charles Krug winery dinner on the 27th of October at 6.30. It's £75 per head with three courses and five wines. And you can book by emailing kings at cambridgewine.com. Uh, there are some interesting wine tastings coming up at Cambridge Vinopolis. Chong, who runs them, has the details. So every Wednesday evening at about 8pm, we have a wine tasting on a different theme. The themes that have been particularly popular have been wine regions, South African wines, wines of Armenia. In the past, we've done wines of Georgia, one of the oldest wine-producing regions in the world, as well as Spain, Greece. Actually, Greece was the most popular wine tasting, interestingly enough. On Wednesday the 27th, we've got wines of the Loire Valley. So if they're a fan of Sauvignon Blanc, then that's definitely one to come to. We've got a rather interesting Old World versus New World blind tasting on the 10th of November. In 1976, Californian wines actually famously beat the wines of Bordeaux in the Judgment of Paris, as in the Wine Judgment of Paris. We're going to recreate our own version of that, so the Judgment of Cambridge, where we'll be pitting old world wines versus new world wines, seeing what people prefer, and they won't know which is which. We'll be doing a flight of champagnes on the 8th of December. We will try and find lots of grower champagnes rather than the grand marks that people find in supermarkets. We'll see what the artisanal producers are actually doing in France. I try and find really good value wines. So I have a lot of Portuguese wines and a great big collection of Georgian wines. At Vinopolis, we try and find wines which are great quality and irrespective of where they come from. Wine tastings are typically £30 per person. And that includes a flight of wines and matched 
snacks to go with them. If the wines are more expensive, for instance, for the champagne tasting, those tickets will be at a higher cost. And a tip that you should book in advance on the Vinopolis website. The events do fill up. The Loire Valley tasting is this Thursday, 27th of October. And on the subject of beverages, Thirsty in Chesterton Road has something of a coup. On the 10th of November, there will be a visit there from the Nerd Brewery in Sweden. There will be tastings and food will be available from Areno. Tickets are £35 and they will be very limited. Pinkster Gin is currently giving away a free copy of its Little Pinkster cocktail book with any order from pinkstergin.com. Stephen Marsh of Pinkster explains. I've produced a, a cocktail book, and we call it the Little Pinkster Cocktail Book. It's got ten very, very easy cocktail recipes in there to make. They're all ones that I make at home. We're often asked for simple cocktail recipes, and we thought that we would put them all into one book. One with every order that's ordered through our website. It's very good, lots of good pictures, easy to follow instructions. Some of them are quite easy to make in larger quantities for parties and things like that. I gather you've also produced a new product, is that right? Yes, we've actually come out of lockdown. <laughs> Unlike a lot of people, we felt we were drinking too much during lockdown. Uh, when I say we felt we were drinking, <laughs> I was perfectly happy. I bowed to my wife's request and we produced a lower ABV and lower calorie spirit. We've called it Pinkster Spritz. We're in two flavours. One is raspberry and hibiscus and the other is elderflower and raspberry. Both of them uh, we make using a byproduct of making Pinkster. Because um, when I make pinks, I make it with fresh raspberries, all of which are, are grown at, um, at Milton, just outside Cambridge. When we finish making pinks, so we're left with the raspberries. We end up with a mixture of gin and raspberry juice. We've done another maceration with hibiscus to make the raspberry and hibiscus. And then we blended it with our hedge pig zesty elderflower liqueur, which we also make at the elderflower and, and raspberry spritz. We recommend serving with, with soda water rather tonic fever tree my personal favorite is the fever tree mexican lime soda on a one to four basis or even as much as a one to eight it's absolutely delicious and you end up with something that is between two and and four and a half percent in your glass um, which is under half the strength of a glass of wine or a gin and tonic in your glass about a third of the calories of a similar glass of wine Autumnal foods are with us now. Uh, Cambridge Cookery and Bistro has pumpkin and chicken tagine, while Café Abantu in Hobson Street has burnt pumpkin cheesecake. Looking ahead to Christmas eating, and if you're making Christmas cakes, mince pies or Christmas puddings, Emerald Foods on Cambridge Market has Alexia raisins, jumbo golden raisins, flame raisins, sultanas, currants, whole orange and lemon peel, and also gold, green and red glacé cherries. And Limoncello's gift hampers are now available with Italian goods like coffee, olive oil, amaretti and, naturally, Limoncello. I caught up with L Events, who is gearing up for a Christmas residency at a local cocktail bar. So what we've done this year for Christmas 2021 is came up with underground cocktail bar 2648. And Jason Howard, once again, has put together a fantastic Christmas offering So at 2648. People are more than welcome to hire out the whole venue with a live DJ and finger buffet offerings, or they can also hire out the secret library. A Christmas event including live DJs and murder mysteries, but not murdering live DJs. More's the pity. 
and Chef Jason Howard has come up with some great items for the Christmas table at 2648. Absolutely. I'll go through some of my favourites. So from the Finger Buffet menu, we've got the sage and onion donuts with caramelised onion jam, sausage and bacon croquettes with honey and mustard, king prawn and bacon butter tart with creme fraiche, chilli and garlic. And for the sweet lovers out there, we've got Christmas pudding truffles, rum and raisin ganache, caramelised apple and cinnamon tart and an Irish cream trifle cake as well. On top of those tasty dishes, Elle was able to confirm her newest event. Yeah, an event on the 11th of December at Island Hall out in Godmanchester, um, a 17th century Georgian house. We will be hosting a gala dinner there with a live choral choir as well, starting from 6.30pm. Tickets include all of the beverage, a beautiful two-course festive-themed dinner followed by Petaphors in the main saloon. And that is £130 per person for the ticket. And we'll be starting the ticket sales next week for that one. So, if you'd like to book up for any of those events, just pop by her website, l-eventsltd.co.uk. And finally for this news section, the Clay Farm Community Garden has a garden party every Thursday evening at the garden in Hobson Avenue uh, with a food truck. This week, it was steak and honour. Now, 12 years ago, we ran a feature about wood, specifically a roasting plank company, where wood flavours would infuse the food that you put on them. So here's something that's a little similar, but with a brand new sustainable homeware business that you can find on Sundays at Cambridge Market. I always wanted to be a lumberjack. It's always nice to find something new at the market. This is a little company called Orin. Hi, my name is Annie. My dad is a carpenter, he's in West Wales, so the name Oren, Oren is actually Welsh for orange. We sell mainly serving boards and serving platters and a lot of wooden utensil ranges, so the servers are mainly our main focus. Best for cheeses and also we do advise that you can also chop on them, so one side could serve and one side could chop. But we offer a variety of oak, ash, beech, walnut, all varieties of wood for servers, yes. Yeah. When I started Orin, it was about about six or seven months ago now, I was at home with him. He had a lot of this spare wood lying around from his windows and doors that he makes. And I thought, let's turn them into something people want, something people can use, and it's not waste product. So this is your idea? Yes, yes. So we, it's something I feel I've always wanted to do. I've never had the chance to do it, but with everything that's happened with lockdowns, and he thought, oh, let's try, let's try one or two shapes and we'll go from there. And they've really worked out. And I think when people see and feel them, they can see the quality of them yeah. and that's something he's been a carpenter for over 40 years now so I feel like there's something he's been really able to hone in on and he's got a great skill set so he he can whip one up so easily and I'm just sat there thinking oh my goodness <laughs> so fabulous <laughs> no one does wood more good so most wood is FSC certified and it's got an origin and it's got that place we know where it came from and what's happened to that and with the process of that as well. So you are certainly paying a little bit extra for that, but it's important, especially now with everything going on, sustainability is key now for, for many people, I believe. So, yeah, it's good. 
I love the look of those boards over there that you've got hanging up. So we've got a few boards that are a mix of two different woods. So the stripe servers are a mix of ash and walnut. Both are leftovers from a staircase and a window. So they're strips of wood that are processed together. It's quite unique because you have the dark grain of the hardwood of the walnut and then you've got the light ash mm. and they're combined and it's quite striking and it's a bit, a slightly unusual compared to a, a board that's just one colour. It's a fabulous mix of both, yes. Because we are using leftover wood, we can produce any size then and we tend to not cut them down and so that each board is slightly different and vary in shape. Okay, so what you've got here... We'll have the nourishing wood balm. This is um, what we finish our boards with. I make this at home. So it's a mix of organic beeswax, mineral oil and orange essence oil. This is just to treat the boards and essentially after the board's made by my dad, we give this a good coat of this stuff onto each board. But the wax from the beeswax prevents water from penetrating the board, which can eventually lead to warping. And then the mineral oil re-nourishes from when the wood is dried out, essentially from when it's cut. The orange oil is an antibacterial property as well, so the mix of three we do use to coat each board and then after we do advise that each board is re-nourished every once or once to two a month, so once or twice a month. But this is something that is food safe, it's good enough for your skin essentially because it is just beeswax, mineral oil and orange oil. So yeah, it's, it's super safe and it's something as well that people can make at home if they want to, if they've got a board or two and it does need re-nourishing, just make some at home and pop it on and do let it sit on the product for about a day and then buff off any excess. Here we are, it's Sunday afternoon, you're just about to close down. How do you feel? And if you've had such a busy day and a mix of need to get my feet up. Blotch! <laughs> the mighty Scots pine! The smell of fresh-cut timber! Now that was Annie of Oren, makers of beautiful, unique chopping and serving boards and utensils, amongst other things. And you can find Oren at Cambridge Market on Sundays. However, they will also be at the Mill Road Saturday Fair on the 6th of November. Now, that is held on Donkey Common next to the swimming baths in the gym. And you can check out their goods online as well at orenhomeware.com. And new customers get 10% off using the code CAMS10. Uh, more news now, and let's start with news about Cambridge Market's proposed development. Rosie Moore, Executive Councillor, has told Flavour that there is still work going on by the City Council's market team researching different demountable stalls and reviewing the public's responses to the trial of one of the options. Work is also going on to find an alternative location to hold the market while infrastructure work takes place. Assuming it all goes to plan and that the public responses are in favour of the market reorganisation, the next stage will be to create a detailed and technical design and that will go also to public consultation. Alongside this, grants will be applied for and the funding will need to be agreed. If the second consultation is supported by the public and if the money is available and a suitable temporary location can be found, the work can start. As Rosie says, there's quite a long way to go. The council will be discussing the responses to the first consultation in March. There's a new place to eat on the quayside here in Cambridge. It's the Tipsy Vegan, which is offering a menu with dishes from all over the world, like arancini, mushroom ragu, beetroot ravioli, satay ramen. There's a large selection of small plates, sharing boards, as well as mains, and at weekends, brunches and a Sunday roast. 
and Bumble and Oak Chocolates are back. You can get them at Barbarella in High Street, Chesterton, and Meadows in Eltisley Avenue, and shortly from Click It Local. Edge Cafe in Mill Road is holding a community fair on the 6th of November from 11 till 7. There's all-day brunch and a lot of stalls. From 5 till 7, there's a vegan cookery workshop with pantry parcels, uh, which you'll need to book for. And if you'd like to have a stall or an information stand, email gail at at theedgecafecambridge.com. And tonight, that's Saturday the 23rd, My Persian Kitchen are returning to cook another pop-up menu at Cambridge Cookery and Bistro on Hills Road. Tickets are available. Cambridge Cookery seats about 45 people and you can book yourself a ticket via l-events.co.uk or you could just try walking in. The My Persian Kitchen team are very flexible to accommodating hungry locals. Tradizioni in the Broadway Mill Road is now open from 8am until 10pm for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And don't forget their Mercato outside on Thursdays. A Stem and Glory has a two-for-one offer on mains on Monday evenings from 4pm. Um, Cambridge's winery in a windmill, Gutter and Stars, Chardonnay 2020, is released on the 15th of November and you can pre-order it from the 1st of November from the Gutter and Stars website. Vintner Chris Wilson's other wines sold out very fast, so you'll need to get in quickly. Parker's Tavern now has its own brand of wine. It's a 2016 claret, Parker's Tavern claret. And Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern has a free cook-along with Marks & Spencer chef Chris Baker. There's a link to it on Tristan's Instagram account. It happens on Monday 25th October at 6pm. So if you're listening to Flavours Monday Repeat, I'm afraid you've missed most of it. (laughs) And another piece of news from Parker's Tavern. They are now selling Saffron Grange Vineyard sparkling wine. Here's Paul Edwards, owner of the vineyard, talking about establishing his business. To plant a vineyard, which is what I chose to do, the time it takes is you've got to grow the vines first and you've got to make sure that you've got the right clones of vines. So our vines, which are Pinot Noir, Pinot Mernier and Chardonnay, plus Pinot Gris and Saval Blanc, those you need to understand how they can thrive. And you need to plan out how you're setting out your vineyard. There's a very complex, time-consuming process. And the one thing that you have to have is time. So it's taken us basically seven years to establish the vines themselves. And then, of course, the production of sparkling wine, you've got a further three years in the bottle and in terms of getting the fermentation to produce the right taste you want achieved. So it takes a long time. And we'll have more news later in the programme. Now the break. We'll be hearing from the highly regarded Perrin Olive in Hildersham who have a very exciting new approach to their weekend menus with more news and lots of jobs too and an appreciation of apples. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. It's the breakfast show that's all about Cambridge. We've got the news. National and local. Travel updates. From the A14 to Milton Bode and all stations to Cambridge. The people and the places. Plus guests in our Friday food club. Cambridge Juice. All the new things to do in the city. Our daily quiz. Oh yes, questions, questions with Lucian. And all request Jukebox Friday. And don't forget the coffee. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. Here with a fresh blend weekday mornings from 7. 
What's in your spare room? Christmas decorations? Maybe an old exercise bike? Could you give that room to a young person along with a fresh start? St Christopher's Fellowship is looking for people to become foster carers in Cambridgeshire to provide safe, caring homes for teenagers who need help. And because we've been working to improve young people's lives since 1870, you can trust that you're not on your own. You'll receive regular training, dedicated social worker support and space to share experiences with other carers. It's more than a spare room, it's a brighter future. Call 0800 234 6282 or visit stchris.org.uk fostering. St Christopher's, creating brighter futures. Hi, Pam here. Are you tired of the same old shops? Drop into Fantasia on Mill Road near Parker's Peace. Enter our treasure cave full of fine clothing and exotic homewares. Natural materials, uplifting ambiance, mood improvement guaranteed. Perk up your wardrobe, your home, your life. Dare to shop different. Fantasia, 64 Mill Road, Cambridge. Fantasia.uk.com. For opening times, please see fantasia.uk.com. And welcome back to Flavour. The Parent Olive in Hildesheim is back open and doing a tasting menu two weekends a month, along with a paired flight of wines. The next dates are 29th and 30th of October, when the menu is called The Seven Seas. On the 12th and 13th November, it's Vegan in Harmony. And on the 28th and 29th November, Hunt and Gather. Here's Executive Chef Gail Lecoli with more info. <laughs> we, we open. So last week was our first week we opened the restaurant at night time. We opened up with a bang because we did a testing menu, eight course Into the Wild, and it was fantastic. Tell me what was in the menu. Into the Wild was more of a poisoning, wild menu kind of thing. So uh, my idea was to make it a little bit more fun. So we did eight course. Some of the course I can tell you we did uh, wild meat, uh, freshwater crush we found here, uh, stinging needles. Lots of edible flowers. Some of the produce we have here, we, we have to source uh, locally, like the quails, the truffles were sourced locally. And it was a really interesting menu. I mean, we have some wild trout on the menu. It's called the trout uh, upstream. It was a trout with the stinging needles. Uh, soup, like a very thin soup with a little bit of coconut and curry. It was kind of spicy, but fresh. Everything was really fresh, and it was really, really well received. We also did rabbits and wild meat sorbet, venison. The venison with berries, dried berry, we do here. It's interesting. You mentioned truffles, local English truffles. Yeah, we have some truffles uh, around here, and then also we harvest truffle in Wiltshire as well. Just as a matter of interest, what's the difference in taste between an English truffle and, let's say, a Perigord truffle? Uh, you know what? I think the truffle in Perigord is more dark because it's uh, uh, definitely a better weather over there. But flavor-wise, they're very, very similar. I mean, you're talking about summer truffle, not white truffle, crazy flavor. But the black truffle uh, is, is very similar in flavor, actually. Uh, they're a little bit smaller here, and so they have a thicker skin as well because it's more, it's colder. So it's the skin is loose, which I love because I use it for a bit of skin, and I marinate with port wine. It makes a beautiful, really truffle port. The whole concept behind the menu is trying to find everything local, really. This weekend's menu, uh, the Saturday menu, what is that called for this one? This weekend, we are doing 
our regular menu, which is a chef market menu, this weekend. So next weekend, going to be the 29th and the 30th, so we're doing a seven seas. So the whole concept about the next next menu is about picking fish from the seven seas, which, you know, you're talking about the Mediterranean and the Adriatic Sea, the Caspian Sea, the Black Red Sea. So it gives you a little bit of different flavor from a little bit all over the Mediterranean and also Atlantic a little bit. For example, the Adriatic has the best tuna you can find. I would put it dry aged with salt and dried right now as we speak. You're going to test something different, something you haven't tested before in fish. So the Seven Seas menu sounds a really, really interesting one. That's a six-course menu. That's going to be eight courses. Eight courses, excellent. What's the price of that and how does one book up? Okay, so well, you can actually book online. You can go on the Pear and Olive website straight away. It's really simple to book. The most important thing is to go on the website and then you so you can actually display a little bit what, what we're going to be doing exactly on the menu. What's the timing and the price for that? Okay, so the price is £70 per person for the eight-course menu. We also offer a wine testing to go with it as well, which is one wine per course, so you got about seven wines, only £25 to come and then have an experience, really, really an experience. And you have a lovely, cosy dining room there, a very nice atmosphere. We only book for 23 people, so so it books really quick. Like the last menu, the Into the Wild, was completely booked a few days before, like a week before. So it does... And, and people know your reputation, which is lovely. And what's the next one you've got coming up after the Seven Seas? Okay, so after the Seven Seas, it's like a little bit of unusual testing menu. It's also an eight course as well, but it's going to be a vegan menu. I decided to do vegan just to challenge myself a little bit. It's going to be a little bit of an extravagant vegan menu. I call that menu vegan in harmony. I'm going to try to have an harmony between the vegetables and the protein, the vegan protein and things like that. So this one, I actually, I'm the most excited about it. I have a course in that menu that uh, I've been working on it already, but there's a course which is going to be a carrot course and every test carrots, and it's going to be cooked eight different ways. So you have a place, so lots of texture, lots of color. That sounds really interesting. Eight different amazing things to do with a carrot, the vegan extravaganza. Thinking a little further ahead, what is happening regarding Christmas? Are you going to be open over that period? Yeah, 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 no, we are. Yeah, Christmas this year will be a little bit different than uh, other Christmas. We normally open on Christmas Day, we are, but we are going to be open on Christmas Eve, much all day so Christmas Eve will be open from 11 a.m. to about 10 o'clock at night so we're going to have a a la carte menu for Christmas like we're going to have a a lot of traditional dishes beef wellington stuffed turkey and things like that so so it's going to be a little traditional but going to be really really well done definitely going to do a duck on the menu and Lots of vegetable dishes as well. But it's going to be a la carte, a lot easier. And then also we're going to open on the 26th by the same hour. hours now Then we open at Fair and Olive. Mm. And we're serving lunch now, very limited hours, except uh, when we go in close to Christmas, we're going to do some special events, the hot chocolate, hot toddies, because uh, a lot of people close to Christmas, they walk around here. We have a lot of walkers from Linton, Abington, Cambridge, they all come here. So it's going to be a little bit different hours, but that's also going to be on the website, Pear and Olive. And that's pearandolive.com, isn't it? Yes. Oh, that sounds lovely. Oh, well, I'm I'm so glad to hear things are going well for you at the Pear and Olive game. Oh, no, thank you. No, thank you. I mean, it's like we're so glad to be with you, It's been so long and... 
just reopen and have people here and it's just a joy. It's like for me, I've been closed way too long. It was very frustrating. <laughs> Back in the kitchen now and I'm loving it. Yeah, that sounds good, Sue. Have you eaten there? I have indeed. It's absolutely delicious and such a lovely atmosphere. Actually, Sue, during one of our lockdown programmes, you talked about walking to Hildersham from Barton. And I've always wondered whether you did it, because it's rather a long way. Well, yes, actually, we did. We made it. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, some more news now. And there are a couple of tastings coming up at Cambridge Wine Merchants in Cherry Hinton Road. Now, there is a sherry tasting on the 9th of November. That's £25 per head. The port tasting on the 16th of November has already sold out. But then there is the plantation rum tasting on the 30th of November. That's £15 a head. To book any of these, email cherry at cambridgewine.com and include your contact number. And remember to state which tasting that you're booking for. Uh, Cam's Cuisine has started a wine society to celebrate its relationship with the Languedoc-Roussillon region. There'll be loads of benefits, including discounts, offers, priority booking for wine dinners and tasting events. Culinaris is now selling Forthay Granola that was featured on Ainsley Harriet's TV programme a couple of weeks ago. Meadows now has a homeware corner with books, pottery and ceramics. Now, amongst the books are Nikki Senyet's Extraordinary Flavour Thesaurus, Rosie Sykes's Sunday Night Book and Ned Palmer's Cheesemonger History of the British Isles. Cambridge Mushrooms has introduced pots of powdered mushroom to add to your cooking for increased depth of flavour. There's dried shiitake powder and dried uh, oyster mushroom powder, or you can get a pot of the two mixed. Order online. Malloy's Craft Butchers in Station Place has some hot smoked chicken in store from Green Barbecue. And that's our news for today. Uh, and very much an apple time of year. Claire Barker from the Brownsfield Farm Stall on Cambridge's Sunday Market has had Ashmead kernel apples recently and last week also had Cottenham seedlings, both lovely crisp a- apples. Here's Laura Donoghue with her essay in praise of apples. In rural South Jersey, where I mostly grew up, apple orchards surrounded us with miles of fruitfulness and roadside stands. I remember the openness of the space where they grew and the smell of apple, of wine sap and Macintosh and the cool mustiness of what we called the cider place where we'd get gallons of dark juice and apples by the bushel. How good it tasted to drink down icy cold how joyful it was to crunch to the core. We grew up with the beauty of apple blossom and the life of the orchards, old wood crawling with beetles and rich with mosses and lichen, wildflowers, bees and bird life. And of course the excitement of seeing those hard green pippins plump and ripen into autumn when their apple scent was carried in the air with leaf mold and wood smoke and the deer would get drunk on fermenting windfalls. When I moved to England many years ago, I learned that the British lay claim to the apple as their own in a way as elemental to them as my childhood ownership of apples was to me. The apple runs deep in the national psyche here, and while most of the world has a claim to the apple, Britain can make a convincing case for a distinctive, if not exclusive, relationship with this immensely buried fruit. The apple's heritage is greater than any fruit on these shores. Its use is nearly infinite, 
from cider to cooking to eating off the tree, with each having its own subtleties and complexities, its own balance of sweetness and acidity, and hints of citrus, licorice, or spice. No other country has specialized so much in an apple for every use, and from every county, and nearly every parish even. The quintessential British apple still has a local stamp from a time when distance was measured by human footsteps and orchards represented permanence and timelessness in the British landscape. Some say the apple reflects the qualities we associate with Britishness itself, adaptability, tolerance, inventiveness, diversity. With apple season coming to its peak, local orchards, farmers markets, and apple days are offering varieties so numerous, it's impossible not to be seduced by their fragrances, shapes, and names, their histories and hues, as colorful as a Shakespearean cast. The jolly reds of Falstaff and buttercup yellow king of the Pippins, the lipstick pink Fuji with its brush strokes of white, honey crisps wild peppermint stripes, the matte reds and browns of Ashmead's kernel, the diminutive golden Pitmaston pineapple, the multi-green majesty of Bramley and Howgate Wonder, the sunset shades of an Egremont russet. It's a beauty pageant, each variety having some merit distinctly its own, each individual fruit with its personal arrangement of freckles, stripes, and imperfections. Apples are homely and comforting, their associations with the loss of paradise redeemed into wholesomeness. The apple reassures. Unlike a plum or peach, the apple is robust, sturdy enough for a marching Roman legion or a hobbit walking party. You can carry one in a lunchbox or shove it in a pocket, juggle them even, and they won't suffer much. Storage doesn't even kill the apple's flavor and is even required to make the most of some. We think of apples as the cats of the fruit world, capable of looking after themselves. And yet, with all this magnificent abundance, its industrialized cultivation has consigned most varieties to gardens, community orchards, and extinction. Of the 17,000 varieties once known worldwide, 80% are believed to have been lost. Of the 3,000 known to have been grown in Britain, and the 2,200 currently held in the National Fruit Collection at Brogdale in Kent, only a handful are cultivated widely enough to be generally recognized, and the wonderfully varied tastes of lesser-known varieties has fallen out of common knowledge. This is a loss not just of the apple itself, but of a rich cultural heritage and the entire orchard ecosystem that for centuries helped to shape the British landscape and provide a home to its wildlife. Around 40% of apples eaten in Britain today are grown here. English Apples and Pears, the trade body representing UK commercial growers, wants to increase this to 60% by 2030. Sales of traditional British favorites, Cox's Orange Pippin, Egremont Russet, and Worcester Pearmain have fallen steadily for years, while Gala, Braeburn, Jazz, and Pink Lady all originally New Zealand and Australian varieties, have been rising fast. Gala and its offshoot Royal Gala are now the biggest selling eating apple in the UK, and total sales, including homegrown and imported Gala, 
are more than four times that of the old British favorite, the Cox. The number of commercial orchards in Britain has fallen around 36% in the last 20 years, and those remaining are getting bigger and cultivating ever more intensively. The industry has planted 8 million new trees in recent years and has invested 120 million pounds in research and development. However, with the exception of Bramley's, the varieties they've invested most in are not British-bred varieties. Growers cultivate around 25, but only nine originate here. So yes, there should be more opportunities for us to eat apples grown in the UK, but the Buy British slogan tells only part of the story, as the so-called Antipodean four varieties are set to continue dominating the market. Traditional orchards, by contrast, were home to a variety of fruit trees, including several cultivars of apple, grown on large trees that were long-lived and widely spaced, with little or no soil disturbance required in their upkeep. Unlike annual crops, orchards were meant to last, and indeed an apple tree can live 100 years or even longer. And each orchard had its own unique ecosystem, providing a countrywide mosaic of biodiverse habitats, woodland, hedgerow, and meadow grassland for native species of plant and animal life. Apples have grown in Britain since the Romans brought them here, but it was the age of empire and the Victorian passion for gardening on the scale afforded by large fortunes that was most responsible for the blossoming of the British apple culture. Plant collectors brought back fruits from all over the world, and breeders, both commercial and those knowledgeable head gardeners employed by the wealthy, experimented with new crosses, giving some varieties their names, the Lord Burley, Lord Peckover, and Lady Hollandale, to name some from Cambridgeshire. The Victorians cultivated hundreds of new apples, and as Alison Richards in her encyclopedic study writes, Connoisseurs would compare varieties, regions, and vintages with the same subtlety and, and intensity with which they discussed the claret. Amateur breeders and cottage gardeners also developed choice specimens. This was aided by the biology of the apple, which rarely comes true to seed and must be grafted to produce the same fruit type. So chance seedlings can sometimes produce a happy accident deemed good enough to propagate. Any variety with the word pippin or seedling in its name indicates it was originally a natural sport selected for its virtues. History proves our current reliance on imports is nothing new. As the prestige of the British apple rose in the mid-19th century, the growing middle classes created such a thriving market for cheaper apples from France and North America that the native apple industry faced extinction. Alison Richards assesses the reaction as one of bulldog spirit. Enthusiasm for English apples acquired the intensity that arises from a sense of imminent loss. All rally to mount a veritable fruit crusade to modernize old orchards, guide the new fruit growers, beat the Yanks, and persuade fruiterers and their customers to buy English apples before it was too late. Around 3,000 acres of new orchards were planted each year during the 1880s and 90s in the traditional fruit-growing areas of Kent and Evesham, and also in new areas of eastern England, including the Cambridge area. This mid-19th century push to rescue the British industry 
gave rise to the large-scale fruit growing that's been so important to Cambridgeshire. The first large Bramley orchards were planted around Wisbeach, where they're still a major crop, supplying processed apple to the bakery trade. In 1851, the Chivers family bought land at Histon to supply the wholesale fresh market and jam manufacturers in the North, the Midlands, and London. The family later founded its own jam factory, encouraging the planting of many new orchards in surrounding villages. The Chivers also bred their own apple varieties, including the still reliable Chivers Delight and the yellow and pink striped Histon Favorite. A strong orcharding tradition continued across Cambridgeshire for the next century, and there are over 20 local apple varieties still known to be in existence, many of which you can see at a local apple day. The One Bite Red Crockett, bred for the toffee apple trade, the Jolly Miller, believed to have been named for a Cottenham pub where the fruit was once traded, the complex-flavored Barnack Beauty, and another 20 at least are believed to have been lost. Britain's entry into the European Economic Community in the 1970s saw major changes in the economics of fruit growing. Not only did it open the doors to competing apples such as the French Golden Delicious, agricultural subsidies were heavily biased towards cereal production, and growers were offered grubbing grants to dig up their orchards and convert their land to arable use. In the past two decades, concern over the loss of orchards has prompted a number of organizations, including the East of England Apple and Orchard Project, whose knowledgeable members are to be found at Apple Days around the region, to undertake comprehensive studies of traditional orchards. These have found that around 90% of the orchards existing in 1950 have since disappeared, with those surviving still being vulnerable to neglect, conversion to arable land, or redevelopment. Traditional orchards are now part of the Cambridgeshire County's Biodiversity Action Plan and recognized nationally by DEFRA as designated priority habitats valued as hotspots for biodiversity, including rare and scarce species, and for their great variety of fruit cultivars. There has been a groundswell of public interest in orchards, and in Cambridgeshire, community orchards in Trumpington, Reach, Camborne, Impington and Histon, and Midsummer Common in the city, to name a few, are reviving threatened apple varieties and working to reinstate orchard habitats. The People's Trust for Endangered Species keeps an up-to-date list of orchards and has identified 35,000 in England alone. They regularly add new orchards to the register and find new apple varieties, many that were never before recorded. It's heartening to know that even if most of our heritage apples have become commercially extinct, they're not quite biologically extinct, thanks to dedicated apple detectives, conservationists, gardeners and volunteers. We're also blessed in this area to have local growers like the Manning family farm in Willingham, the Cam Valley Orchards in Meldreth, and the Heath farm in Blentisham, who safeguard a generous variety of interesting and sometimes rare apples for sale at their farm gates. The Common Ground Environment Group, which 20 years ago initiated the annual Apple Days that have done so much to promote apples and orchards around the country, 
is hopeful that a corner has been turned, but cautious too, acknowledging that while we're in a far better position than we were then, we started at a low point and have a long way to go. The health of orchards and apple biodiversity is so important to our food security, so embedded in our history, culture, and national identity, and so critical to our environment that it should be integrated into the way our food is produced and securely underpinned by stewardship at every level. Perhaps one of the achievements of the grassroots movement to revive the orchard will be to encourage large retailers and growers to look beyond the presumed consumer demand for uniform red and samey sweetness and give more space to older varieties worth preserving for their range of flavors and not just for the sake of culinary curiosity. Our food supply will always face threats from pests and disease, climate change, and other factors we only partly foresee. And solutions to some of the problems we'll face in the future can come from the genetic information stored in these richly diverse and fruitful trees, each with its own very human story. The wonderful writing of Laura Donahue, whose excellent blog is called Crumbs on the Table. And there's the music that signals time for our Twitter news. Uh, yeah, just uh, uh, time for a, a couple. Uh, Scots All Day uh, uh, will be open all day on Tuesday from 10 o'clock, but then in order to have well-earned half-term rest with their families, they'll be open the rest of the week from 4 in the afternoon until 9.30pm, but back till 10 o'clock in the morning next weekend. Uh, Tom's Cakes has got mini meringue bones atop a red velvet cupcake for Halloween, which sounds rather thrilling. Oh, one more. Um, there's a cancellation at Finboys tonight. Um, one table for four and one for two, so contact them if you're interested. <laughs> That is Green Onion signalling the start of our job section. At Cambridge Juice, based in Meldreth, need a delivery driver and warehouse person. You'll need a clean driving licence, be aged 25 or over. Email kelly at cambridgejuice.com. Eclipse Bakery needs a full-time baker. Experience in Sado production is essential. They also need a full-time barista. Experience is preferred, but training will be given if you're new to it. Email dulcedopatisserie at icloud.com. Restaurant 22 in Chesterton Road needs a kitchen assistant. So for details, email alex at restaurant22.co.uk. Bob Reller's looking for chefs with experience. Email your CV and availability to hellobabs at barbarella.co.uk. Provenance is looking for front-of-house staff. You'll need to be 18 or over. The jobs are part-time from 12 till 4pm Wednesdays to Fridays and one evening and one weekend shift per week. More information from Kate at provenancekitchen.com. Linton Kitchen needs a kitchen assistant. Experience isn't essential as training will be given. You can email Gemma at thelintonkitchen.com. Also, Bridges in Bridge Street is looking for a kitchen assistant and a barista. Send your CV to info at bridgescambridge.co.uk. 
Uh, and uh, a quick rundown of other jobs. For more details, contact them via their website or social media uh, or pop in at a quiet time. The Haymakers needs a full-time pizza chef. Cambridge Oven Hills Road needs a pastry chef. Commie chefs are needed at Browns in Trumpington Street and the Ivy in Trinity Street. And Pint Shop needs a sous chef, commie chef and chef de partie. And a breakfast commie chef is needed at the Clayton Hotel in Station Road. Chef de parties are needed at Cam's Cuisine, the Boot in Histon, Girton College and the Gonville Hotel. A junior sous chef is sought by the Ivy and a kitchen assistant is needed at the Baron of Beef in Bridge Street. And finally for today, a chef is acquired at Sticks and Sushi in Wheeler Street. And that takes us to the end of our programme for today. Flavour broadcasts on alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. And we'll also be available via podcast early next week. Coming up next this afternoon on Cambridge 105 Radio is Too Good To Be Forgotten. Uh, But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 6th of November with lots more food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. goodbye. Bye.